0: You've seen the pumpkin carving thing. I don't know who put that on the window there. It was done before fall festival, but I want to read it to you because it goes along very well with the message of the book of Romans. How is being a Christian like being a pumpkin? God picks you from the patch, brings you in, and washes all the dirt off you, cuts off the top, and scoops out all the yucky stuff. He removes the seeds of doubt, hate, greed, etc. And then he carves you a new smiling face. And puts his light inside of you to shine for all the world to see. That's how a Christian is like a pumpkin. And if you're wondering why I'm reading it from the phone. Because I can't read that far. But I can read this far. So I took a picture of it. It is true, is it not, that the Lord does the work on the inside of us when we come to him. Takes the yucky stuff out, puts his light on the inside, and that's a pretty good summary of uh, the book of Romans, how God accomplishes that in us. Before we begin, let's pray together. Lord, we are so thankful for all of your blessings, for who you are, for all that you do for us. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful that you have put in our hearts a desire for your word, to learn your word, Lord, to be able to internalize your word, understand your word, be enlightened by your word. What a privilege it is. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, and we appreciate you providing for us the eternal, infallible word of God. Help us tonight as we study it. Open our eyes. Help us to see things we may have never seen before. Help us to understand things, Lord, maybe in a way that we never have before. In short, Lord, help us to learn something tonight. From your word we pray. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Amen. This is a book of the Bible. Very, very popular. Many people would call it their favorite book. I could take the time to read to you um, great men throughout history who had some things to say about Romans and how it was so meaningful and beautiful and, and their adjectives and what they say about this book. Um, it just covers so many wonderful topics and, and, and deals with the major themes of justification. And so that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. In Job 9 verse 2, Job asked this question, How can a man be just before God? How can a man be just before God? Or, how can a man be right before God? How is that possible? And that is a question that the book of Romans is going to answer for us. I don't know if i would ever heard this before um, until I read it this week. But uh, one writer has said that we can never be um, just before God until we, as Christians, that's a U there, until we, what? Adjust and and come to Him. Um, and there's a lot to be said for that. We cannot be just until we come to the Lord and we can allow Him to adjust us. You've probably heard of um, maybe an attitude adjustment or carburetor adjustment. Sometimes things need to be tweaked. Sometimes they need to be adjusted. Boy, when it comes to the heart of man, we really need more than adjustment. I like what he said. It's a little play on words there. We can't be just. Until we are adjusted. But um, it really takes more than a little tweaking. For the human heart. To be made just. It takes a miracle. That only the Lord can do for us. So we're going to take the time to read. um, At least the first seven verses. Which serve as an introduction. To the uh, book of Romans. Romans chapter 1 verse 1. Paul a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. And since this is the, the first of the epistles that we are studying, let's, let's pause just a minute and take a look at that. If I write you a letter, most of the time you began how? Dear, dear something, yeah. <laughs> dear John, dear Jane, dear whoever. So usually the way we do it is we begin with their name. Right? We begin with the recipient's name. Dear John. And then we end by signing our name. It was exactly opposite in those days. And so we see Paul habitually he does this. When he starts out writing an epistle. He starts out with whose name? His own. He says Paul. A bondservant of Jesus Christ. Called to be an apostle. Separated to the gospel of God. Which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of Holiness, or the Holy Spirit, by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. And then he writes who the recipients are, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Now, I've read through much of the book of Romans just today, and I'll tell you what, I have never noticed this before, but there are the longest sentences in that book I've ever seen. What I just read was actually... Two sentences, I believe. Long sentences. And maybe there's a reason for that. Because as we turn to chapter 16, uh, which is the last chapter, we're going to look at the last few verses there and see something about this um, book of Romans. If you'll notice in verse 22 of Romans 16, the scripture says, I, Tertius." who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Wait a minute. I thought we just read in chapter 1, verse 1, that it was Paul who was the writer of this epistle. And then when we get over to chapter 16, verse 22, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Now, somebody justify that for me. What's happening here? pardon me exactly so Tertius here who wrote this epistle was actually writing down what Paul was saying so Paul was dictating he was giving the thought he was giving these words while Tertius is the one who actually wrote those things down and as Paul finishes reading or writing his um, dictating his thoughts in the book of Romans He obviously looks over to Tertius and says, Do you have anything you want to say? So he speaks up and says, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. And then Paul picks up from there. So he is an amanuensis. He is the the secretary, the copier, the one who is writing down what Paul has to say. So I was thinking today as I looked at some of these, I found some sentences that were like yay long. It was unbelievable. I thought, Boy, my... My English professor in college would love to have got a hold of that. Oh my goodness, run on sentences to the max. But, but maybe it's more understandable, see, because we know now why. Because Paul is just kind of speaking off the top of his head, perhaps dictating, speaking extemporaneously, sharing his thoughts or whatever, and Tertuus is writing them down. So there are sentences that run on and on and on and on. And, uh, maybe that explains some of that. Absolutely. That's exactly right. They didn't have punctuation anyway. But, but boy, when it's translated into English, it sure makes for some long ones, doesn't it? I noticed that several times today. So, as we, as we look at this, uh, we know that Paul is the writer. There was a man who was writing down what Paul had to say. And, uh, does anybody have any, um, idea maybe why Paul would do that why wouldn't he sit down himself and write that anybody have any input he He did in one place Paul wrote to uh, a, a, a group of people there and he said if it were possible you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me because he did have some problems obviously with eyesight Uh, And that may also explain why Luke, the physician, traveled with him a lot to help him along those lines. Some people think that problem with his eyesight, which he obviously had based on what he himself had said, could have been uh, his thorn in the flesh that he talked about and asked for relief from and healing from. So, and maybe we'll get into that next week. But for tonight, suffice it to say that Paul is the writer. He's dictating this. Long letter, really, by comparison to some of the others, um, to the people in Rome. I think I'm going to spend some time Sunday on Romans chapter 1. So I'm not going to read through the bulk of that. However, I would like to point out that as we look um, at verse 15 in chapter 1, Paul says, so as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Up until this po- point, Paul's never been to Rome. And he's never met them. He doesn't know them. They don't know him. They, it's only by way of writing and hearsay uh, and the reputation that um, they know about each other. And so he says, I'm wanting to come and visit with you. Uh, But as soon as he says that, I'm ready to come preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. The next two verses really serve in some ways as the text of Romans. This is the theme. This is the important. This is the the golden kernel in the book of Romans. Where Paul says, chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written the just shall live by faith and we have just read God's way I asked a moment ago about how could a man become just how could that happen It can only happen God's way, and God's way is that the just shall live by what? By faith. You have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and do it his way. The just shall live by faith. So uh, Sunday morning I'd like to talk about the need for justification and use the rest of Romans there, at least as part of our text. But if you'll notice in, in verse 16 he talks about, That this gospel of Christ, it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek. That is for the Jews and the Gentiles. It's the same path to salvation. Now, that's an important um, thing that he's highlighting there because in large measure, how did the Jews respond to the gospel? He came unto his own, and his own received him not. So for the most part, the Jews rejected Christ. They didn't want anything to do with Jesus. And so Paul is stating right here up front that, that the just shall live by faith, and that is true for the Jews as well as it is the Gentiles. The Jews can't ignore that. That's part, it's not part, it is the message of the gospel. And so he's kind of putting that in there up front before he continues his writings here. Um, Jews need grace too. Uh, We read in chapter 2, we're not going to have to take time, we're not going to take time, we don't have time to look in all these chapters and, and give a lot of attention to these themes. Remember, you may, when we were in Isaiah and Jeremiah and these long books in the Old Testament where there were, 50 and 60 chapters we didn't have time to deal with everything we won't have time to deal with everything in in Romans either Um, so we're going to hit the highlights let's look in um, chapter 3 as Paul is arguing that the um, the Jews and the Gentiles both need a savior verse 9 Romans chapter 3 verse 9. What then are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks, both groups, that they are all under sin. Amen? And then he begins to quote, Paul does, these passages from the Old Testament. And we're going to read those beginning in verse 10. There is none righteous, no not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. They're swift, or their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. Verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And remember now the message of Romans is justification by faith. And you know what's going to happen before people can be saved? Now what we've just read here, this pompous, arrogant, mouthy tendency to, to talk and deny God and, and with their tongues they practice deceit. The poison is in their mouths. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their, their feet are swift to shed blood. And on and on they're just, they're just talking and rebelling against God. But notice in verse 9, it says that every mouth may be stopped every mouth may be stopped everybody who everybody who says there is no God everybody who stands up for wickedness and promotes things that are contrary to the word of God which we see happening every day in our land on the news movements attitudes tendencies Trends that our culture is moving in, where we have, we are literally as a nation, and and it's not only us in other parts of the world, spitting in God's face, slapping him in the face as it were, telling him we don't want anything to do with him. You have seen the reaction in the last forty eight hours towards Christians on the news. Uh, there's this there's this move uh, since the shooting, and they talk about. I mean, people in Hollywood on out saying, it's a waste of time to pray. What are you praying for? What good is praying doing? And, and just humiliating Christians, these, these poor, ignorant, pathetic people who were in this church praying on a Sunday morning, belittling Christians and talking like we're here, uh, here Hollywood and different people talking about what happened there, about those, those people who just, well, bless their hearts, they just didn't know any better. Waste their time on a Sunday going to church and praying. That's the kind of attitude that's being talked about here. And verse 19 says, We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. You know, most of the time we have to realize that we're guilty before we can be forgiven, we have to admit that we're sinners. Amen? That's what happens when we come before the Lord in repentance. We say, Lord, I know I have sinned. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. And I'm I'm trusting in you, Christ, to do that. So it's kind of like the person who won't even admit that they're sick, they won't seek help. The person who won't even admit they're a sinner won't turn to God in repentance. First you have to, we have to come to the place it's a, it's a powerful phrase of Scripture that every mouth may be stopped. When I read that, I think about that as mouthy as we can be and the way people in this world can defy God, curse God, there's going to come a day when they, they're not going to have a word to say. When they every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Their mouths will be stopped. That arrogance, that rebellion, that anti-God spirit that so many people have, one day is going to be stopped. The thing about it is, though, we can't come to Christ until that happens in our own lives as individuals. We have to go from a place of turning where we turn against God to where we turn to God and... And go before Him in repentance because there's no way we can save ourselves. We need what He can do for us to make it happen, which is justification by faith. So we continue reading now in verse 21 God's righteousness through faith. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Notice in verse 22, through faith. In verse 24, by his grace. In verse 25, by his blood. And then in verse 26, the one who has faith in Jesus. It's all about faith and grace and the blood of Christ. Amen? Nothing we can do to save ourselves. This lies solely. It has to be a work of God, the work of the gospel, justification. So there's no boasting. Where is boasting then? Verse 27 says, it is excluded. We have no right to boast, do we? Because there's nothing we we can do to save ourselves. Nothing we can do to help ourselves. So there's no point in us boasting. It's that God gets all the glory and the credit. Because he's the one. There's no boasting on our part. Verse 323 is a passage most of us probably have learned. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it's true that all men are sinners. Here's a, a thought I thought was interesting all men are not sinners alike yet all are alike sinners there's a very very thin line of distinction there we are not all sinners alike are we there's um there are murderers but i've never murdered anybody hope you haven't there are rapists i've never raped anybody i hope you haven't But when it comes down to us, all of us are alike in the fact that we're all sinners. Although all of us are not alike in the sins that we've committed. But all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So really we have no reason to boast, no reason to gloat, no reason to feel better about ourselves than what someone else uh, is. Uh, We're all in need of God's mercy and grace. As verse 28 says, Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. And then it continues uh, in verse 30. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. In other words, for the Jew and the Gentile, the process is the same. It doesn't change. Uh, Incidentally, how many ways are there to heaven? One way, and that's Jesus Christ. And we have indications of that here. Abraham was justified by faith. And Paul is going to use Abraham as an example. Uh, Verse 3 of chapter 4 says, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now, to him who works, the wages are not counted as as grace, but as debt. Let's talk about that for just a moment. Abraham, when the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, can anybody can anybody take me back in Scripture and kind of tell us the story of what that's talking about, where it says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness? The story of when he went Okay. Right, and even before that, mm-hmm. let's go back before he went on the mountain with his son pardon me he was going to have that yeah and and he's when he was told that he was like ninety, right, you're going to have a son <laughs> yeah <laughs> and and actually it the the promise was still ten years out, so when Isaac was born, Abraham was a hundred years old, Sarah was ninety, and um <laughs> oh goodness so the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness in other words he, he didn't understand how it was going to happen but he said okay and he, he accepted the fact that this, this was going to be the case okay uh, thank you Lord and uh, he waited and he waited and he waited but he believed God in the process that, that this was going to happen um, Abraham was justified before circumcision. Now, circumcision came later, right, but Abraham was not circumcised when this happened what's the significance of that? How did the Jews feel about circumcision? It, that's basically the case you had man you you weren't a true Jew if you weren't circumcised. And you couldn't be God's people if you weren't circumcised. It's part of the covenant. And so the point is being made here that before there was circumcision, Abraham was faithful and believed what God said. Which goes back to what we're supposed to do with regard to having our sins forgiven. It's not about works and something we're going to do. It's about something we we. Confess and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, the Bible says. So uh, he makes this argument in chapter 4 about the the purity and the blessedness of just being, believing. Um, the last verse in chapter 4 says, talking about Jesus who was delivered up. Because of our offenses, and was raised because of our justification. So, when the Bible says that Jesus was delivered up because of our offenses, what's that talking about? He was our, he Pardon me. He was our sacrifice on the cross. Yeah, he was delivered up on the cross because of our offenses. Right? Mm-hmm. Isaiah fifty-three. He, he carried our sorrows. He bore our sin. He went to the cross for us. He was, he was guiltless. He was sinless. He was perfect. He, he was like a sheep being led to the slaughter. He hadn't done anything wrong. But he went to the cross for our benefit, not for his. He was delivered up because of our offenses. But then he was raised because of our justification. And then in chapter 5, Notice what the Bible says we have because of our relationship with the Lord and having been justified. The Bible says in verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2 says we have access by faith. Um, It goes on to say we rejoice in hope. In verse 3 it says we glory in tribulations. What's that mean? Yeah. Listen, we have a relationship with God. We we have peace with God. We have access by faith. We rejoice in hope. And even when troubles come, we don't fall to pieces and melt away like a slab of butter in a hot pan. We glory in tribulations. We can have victory even in hard times. Right? We glory in tribulations. Knowing that tribulation produces what? Perseverance. And perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. And so God is at work in our lives, even when things are difficult. Verse 6 says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ didn't wait for us to get right and then die for us. He died for us when we were still sinners. Much more then, having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. Wow, there's, there's so much depth and doctrine in the book of Romans. It's just unbelievable. Um, verse 18 of chapter 5. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life let's, let's unpack that verse verse 18 when the bible says as through one man's offense judgment came to all men who's it talking about Adam. Adam Adam messed up and he messed us up in the process right we we all have this this sinful nature when we're born we've got it it's just who we are That's why the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one, and all have sinned and come short of the glory of God because we're descendants of Adam. And the Bible said, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men. We're all born in sin, resulting in condemnation. But then along comes Jesus, the second man, Adam. Even so, through one man, one man's righteous act, the free gift came upon all men. What's that talking about? One man's righteous act, the free gift came. Jesus on the cross, bringing salvation and eternal life to all of us. So because of Adam, all of us were messed up in sin, but because of Jesus, all of us can be set free from that and delivered because of the righteous act of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you'll notice, through one man, man is capitalized there because it's acknowledging that that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse, excuse me, chapter 6 is an interesting chapter. We're going to talk about it just a little bit and read portions of it. Chapter 6 says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Let's talk about that just a minute. As a matter of fact, you answer the questions for me. (laughs) What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? No. no, certainly not, he says. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Does it sound like to you that Paul would have a problem with somebody who, who has come to Christ and become a Christian and they keep habitually sinning? Does that sound like to you it would be a problem to Paul? It does, doesn't it? He says, no, you can't do that. Don't you know that as many as, uh, as we were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? That's the whole picture there. You take somebody and you bury them under the water and they're dead. And then you raise them up to new life. And the picture is, I'm dying. I'm, I'm, that stuff's gone. I'm not going to live that way anymore. I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. And old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I, I'm not going to act the same way, do the same thing, talk the same way. I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. That's that's what we have to understand. For if we have been, verse five, verse 9, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall all be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. Our old man was crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Is it true that somebody can be a slave of sin? Give me a couple examples. Thank you. That's what I was thinking about. You talk about people, you talk about people who are addicted, drug addicts especially. That's, I guess, maybe what was on your mind. I don't know. Alcohol or drugs. My goodness. They're slaves to that, aren't they? It's like they can't get free. It's like this 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 uh, bondage is so strong and so real. It just ru- rules their life and ruins their life. Uh, but yet the Bible tells us that we are not slaves to sin anymore. That stops. And it goes on to say, For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that he also... That we shall also live with him knowing that Christ having been raised from the dead dies no more. Death has no longer dominion over him. For the death that he died he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives he lives to God. Likewise. Verse 11. You also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. But alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What what's he saying there that we are to reckon ourselves to be dead to sin? We have to come to the point spiritually and individually that we're done with the sin nature of our life. Oh, I like that, that we're done with it. We just have to come to the place where we say, I'm done with it. No more. that I'm dead to that life. I'm dead to that lifestyle. And does that mean that there's never going to be a temptation? No. Does it mean that, that that thing's going to leave you alone? No. But it means you have to purpose in your heart. Wait a minute. Now, I came to Christ. He forgave me of that. It's foolish now for me to go back and do the same thing that he forgave me for. It's it's not even practical for me to be bound again with the thing, same things he set me free from. So we reckon, you know, you, you say something... To, I guess the first time I remember that was people around Roseville used to say this. You'd ask them a question. They'd say, I reckon. I don't think I'd ever heard of that until. You ever heard it? I reckon. What's it mean? I I count it. I count it as true. And so when we reckon ourselves dead into sin and then sin comes in some form of temptation, you have to say, wait a minute, I can't do that. I'm dead. I'm dead to that. I died to that. Now, it may hold some attraction. It may hold some appeal. It may be drawing you. It may be whispering to you, come, come, come do this. But you say, I can't do that anymore. I'm a Christian. I belong to Jesus. I've been set free. I'm dead to that. Count yourself dead to sin. Therefore, verse 12 says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. Do not let sin reign. And don't let it control you. Verse 14 says, For sin shall not have dominion over you. Period. Well, no, there's not a period there, but you get the point. Don't let sin have dominion over you. We, well, we, I'll save that one. We're going to get to it in a few minutes. Verse 22. But now, having been set free from sin, and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness... And the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Now. This is quite a. A dissertation. Or a conversation. Although he's not having a conversation with him. With them. In his mind I think he is. I think he's conversing with them. Because. Most, most people who write or think or speak publicly, when you say something, you're already thinking about what are they thinking? Now, what are they saying? And as he's writing this letter, he's reasoning back and forth. Now, I'm saying this. I kind of know what they're going to say, and he goes ahead and talks about that. So this is a problem, is it not? When you come to Christ... Maybe you've had addictions, maybe you've been living in a sinful lifestyle, you come to Christ, you've been freed from that, you've been forgiven for that, you're now supposed to be dead to sin, and what's that sin do? It comes knocking on your door, right? It tries to trick you up, it tries to pull you back into that, and, and that's, that's the way it is. It, it's, it's that way for me, it's that way for you, it's that way for anybody. That's what the devil's job is, to try to trick us, trip us up and drag us back into something that that we were forgiven for. And so then he then Paul acknowledges and he tells us this this scenario, if you will, beginning at verse 15. He says, "For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do," That I do not practice, how many of you have ever thought you were going to do better? You willed to do better, you decided to do better, but you never did better. Oh, that's just me <laughs> it is except except not nearly as important as or far more important than the diet, right? These things are he says for what I am doing, i do I don't understand why I do this for what I really want to do. That I do not practice. But what I hate that I do. If then I do what I will not. What I will not to do. I agree with the law that it is good. It tells me this is wrong. I feel badly about it. Verse 17. But now it is no longer I who do it. But sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh. Nothing good dwells. For to will. Is present with me. But how to perform what is good. I do not find for the good that I will to do. I really want to do it. I do not do it, but the evil that I will not to do that. I practice now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find a law that evil is present with me. The one who wills to do good. I think all of us could say amen to that. Mm-hmm. That evil is present with me. Mm-hmm. Even in your conversations, even in your dealings with people, we're, we're supposed to be careful what we say and how we feel. And boy, we can we can have the devil whispering things in our ear about how we ought to respond to somebody. And if they slap you, you want to do what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's, absolutely and we have to learn we can't always do what we feel like doing what the flesh tells us to do verse 22 for i delight in the law of god according to the inward man i love the lord i love to read word. i love to do what's right but he says i see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members oh wretched man that i am Who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God and with the flesh the law of sin. And he's describing this this very real battle, isn't he? And this battle that you, you, you... We'll probably never win this battle until Jesus comes. Because until then we're living in the flesh. And the flesh always wants to respond in certain ways. That's where we have to count. Listen, do you remember Paul made a really strange statement when he said, I die daily. Now wait a minute, if I died yesterday, I must be dead, right? Not not in this line of thinking. Because what happens is every day is another battle. He says, I, I pummel myself, I beat myself, I die daily, I bring myself under subjection, and we have to do that. It's a never-ending battle. Now, we can win that battle, from what he says here in just a few moments. There's no doubt about that. We can win that battle, but we have to realize there's a battle. So put on the whole armor of God, right? The breastplate of righteousness, the sword of the Spirit. I'll Put on all those things. This is a battle. And we have to be diligent about that. We just can't lay down and quit. And, and stop the fight. If we do we're, we're finished. So the Bible says in chapter 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation. To those who are in Christ Jesus. Who do not walk according to the flesh. But according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life. In Christ Jesus had made me free. Has made me free from the law of sin and death. Well. Let's uh, go to verse 5, chapter 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Boy, there's a nugget right there in that verse 5. I'm going to read it again and I want somebody to tell me what the lesson is there. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, put that in good old Wake County English, where we can understand it. It is spelled D-I-S-C-I-P-L-I-N-E. I like discipline. We have to <laughs> discipline ourselves, don't we? Um, when the Bible says, "For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, what does that mean? you want necessarily what you should do the flesh and that way okay and so give me an example if if I was let's see if I was living according to the flesh, an example of me setting my minds on the things of the flesh in a very practical way would be Would it not? Wouldn't, go for Charles. That's a good example. Those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. So you're thinking about the bar. You're thinking about the fun that's there. And you're drawn towards that. Or... Here's an example I like to use a little bit. If we're filling our minds and our ears and our thought processes with the music that's being played on many radio stations today which glorifies adultery and all kinds of wickedness, that'd be a pretty good description, I think, of setting our minds on the things of the flesh. And when that does, does that feed the flesh or does it feed the spirit? Feeds the flesh, right? And Whatever you feed the most is going to get stronger right so by a lack of discipline not not being careful about what we listen to what we put in our minds our ears and our hearing we we either set our minds on the things of the flesh or we live according to the spirit i mean let's face it you're you're not going to be you're not going to be filled with the Spirit and ready to worship God and and feel so close to Jesus if you're riding down the road listening to some of this stuff that I've heard. I don't even know how the FCC allows it. There's been a couple of times I've been at a, like a stoplight on Capitol Boulevard and somebody pull up beside me. Boom, 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 boom. Well, that's not the boom, 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 boom part. That's that's the part, it's the language and the message, and I'm thinking, how could anybody listen to that garbage? Certainly, how could any Christian listen to that garbage? Which has profanity and vulgar talk all through it, violence. And, and violence, and we're going to listen to that as Christians? Now, that's not very good discipline there, is it? mm that's, that's the way to sabotage your walk with the Lord really quick. As I've heard Dad say over the years, you, You can't scratch around with the chickens all week and fly like an eagle on Sunday. And that's kind of an example of that. Seriously, we'd be a lot better off. We'd be a lot more prepared to worship the Lord on Sunday mornings if we watched what we did throughout the week, wouldn't we? See, And that's what this is talking about. There's a battle going on between the flesh and the spirit, and we have to be aware of that. And feeding the flesh, if it's the movies we watch, the television program, television is as bad as the the rest of it, a lot of times. And we have to discipline ourselves. You can't watch that garbage and it not affect you spiritually. It's going to affect you spiritually. And so we have to be aware of that. The carnal mind, verse 7, well, verse 6. For to be carnally minded is what? Death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God. Nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But if you are not in the flesh but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ. He is none of his. Well we have to hurry. Hurry. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Boy, that's a great verse. Verse 26 is important in as much as it tells us why it is important to feed the spirit man. Likewise, the spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Prayer is a wonderful thing. We were eating supper tonight. Ronnie and I were talking and, and we we were, I think it was Ronnie mentioned being out on the ocean and if the water was rough, it put a man to praying. <laughs> and Ronnie said something like he was, He was how he would feel if he was in it. He said, now, Lord, it's been a long time since I've talked to you, but I need some help now. And he said, that'd be bad. And I said, and we was talking about me being out on boat fishing recently. and, And I said, listen, if any pastor has to go before the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, it's been a long time now, but you hadn't heard from me. But, you know, you're in trouble right off, right? We have to be people of prayer we have to be people who are in touch with the Lord and the spirit will help us with our weaknesses and the spirit will help us through those hard times so uh, verse 29 for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son the Lord wants us to be like Jesus verse 31 what then shall we say to these things if God is for us who can be against us Let me ask you this question. If God is for you, who could successfully be against you? No one. one. And so the Bible says in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, hard times, opposition? Verse 37 says, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created being shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now there's a word there that's very interesting. Verse 37. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors. The Greek word is hupernikeo. Hooper means more than. There's a word, a Greek word, the root of which you're very familiar with. It has to do with conquering. Anybody know what it is? You may have some tennis shoes by that name. Cooper, Nikeo. Nike. Nike Nike means conqueror. And the word is more than conquerors. That's who we are. Why do you think the Nike people called their shoes Nike? Because the very word in, in Greek means conqueror. Boy, you want to put those things on and jump like Michael Jordan? You know, you want to be the conqueror. But the Bible says we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Man, if you want to be a winner, then you surrender your life to the Lord Jesus. And you'll end up winning. I promise you that. Amen. Amen. Well, in the next chapter or two, there's a discussion about the Jews, how that they were they rejected Christ and they need the gospel, but their rejection is not total and their rejection is not final. And... Um, there's still going to be a remnant of Israel who's going to be saved and I'm going to move right on past all of that to chapter 12 as we've got about five minutes left. Chapter 12 represents a change in the gears, so to speak, and all of this that we've been talking about is doctrinal stuff. All has been doctrine so far. Now it turns very practical Not so theological, but practical now in the book of Romans. And we begin in chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And it talks about gifts, spiritual gifts, very important. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Some people say there's nothing they can do to help. They can't be of use to God at all and to the church. Verse 4 tells us something different. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in ministering. Or he who teaches in teaching. Or he who exhorts in exhortation. Or he who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Behave like a Christian is this next heading. Beginning at verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor or giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How many times have you heard that the last few days? Right, the pastor in Sutherland, Texas, and you've heard different people Quoting that scripture. Do not be overcome by evil. But overcome evil with good. Therefore we will pray. They say. We'll turn to God. Even after this tragedy in our community. We're going to let good. Overcome evil. Chapter 13 is a very important passage. uh, In our day especially. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. It talks about those who are our servants. Actually, they're servants of God. They're called servants of God, ministers of God in this passage. is talking about the policemen and the state troopers and, and all the people who are our governing authorities. We're supposed to respect them. With Veterans Day coming up, we respect the, those who serve in military. They are, they're appointed by God. They're God's ministers to keep peace and protection and so forth. And we need to recognize that. We're supposed to put on Christ. Chapter 13. uh, We'll close with this thought. Chapter 14. The law of liberty. It says receive one who is weak in the faith. But not to disputes over doubtful things. You know what? We argue a lot of of things sometimes. We got no business arguing about. Amen? Amen. And so it's talked about right here. One who believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. And it goes on to talk about things that some people will eat and other people won't eat. And they get to criticizing one another. Doesn't accomplish a thing. And the Lord, and and Paul says, stop it. Just stop it. Judging people about things like this. Um, To his own master, he stands or falls. And who is the master? Amen. We answer to him. So there's some things the scripture doesn't speak about expressly. Doesn't violate biblical principles. And people get all worked up about it and 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 go on a witch hunt for something. Uh, we just need to need to be careful about that. Verse 12. So each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Therefore let us not judge one another anymore, but rather receive, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in our brother's way. Verse 19. Let us pursue the things which make for peace, And things by which one may edify another. Wow. Did he ever pack a whole bunch of stuff into the book of Romans. Finally chapter 16 beginning at verse 17. And we'll close here. Chapter 16 verse 17. Now I urge you brethren. Note those. King James Version says says Mark doesn't it. Mark those, now I urge you brethren, note those or mark those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. Kind of following up with Sunday. The Lord calls us to be peacemakers, not troublemakers. Thank you, Tony. Tony's the only one who hadn't gone to sleep. No, I'm just kidding. Wow. He packed a lot into that sixteen chapters. And we didn't scratch the service harshly with what's there. Good stuff. Next week it'll be first Corinthians. Um, I noticed that um, Sherry